This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I mean, what's that football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I would be very careful about slinging stuff. Am I going to get sued? Is that legal on this? I like football, like football season, all the things that go with it. The game that Peyton Manning wanted no part, more part of midway through the third quarter ended up becoming one of the wildest finishes to an NFL football game this season. On Monday night, the, uh, the Buffalo Bills fall to a resurgent Denver Broncos right at the death. We'll cover that. We're going to talk about the, uh, the kind of the fallout from that, where both these teams end up going from here on in, and some draft running back prospects later on in this show. All with our guy, Trevor Sikama. How's it going, Trev? Dude, the Manicast is just such a wonderful broadcast <laughs> because it's basically the exact opposite of everything they teach you in broadcast school, mm. and yet it's still completely entertaining. I tweeted this clip out from the moment that Lutz kicked the first field goal and missed up until like him making the second one. There is a... 90 second period of time the most important 90 seconds of the football game determine the winner where Peyton doesn't say a word he doesn't say anything he just it's just different facial expressions it's him leaning back it's him shaking its head it's him putting his head down and bringing it back up like it, it he is I says I, again I said this on Twitter he deserves an Oscar for his performance you knew exactly what he was thinking and he didn't even have to say a word to you so uh, that was that was a great way to cap off what was an insane Monday Night Football game for a lot of uh, good and bad reasons. I also love I love the unprofessionalism of it. I think that makes it better. Right. Like the fact that they're not like, did you see how it started? How it opened? No. So Peyton Manning was like, you know, with the host, right? The guy that talks first. When right. the camera went on him, he was like lying back in his chair and had to be like. Like jump up quickly and start his thing, like, and, then, and then was clearly like realized he was late to it and was sort of laughing all the way through his first like line delivery to camera. It's like that's better. That that and would if if the regular broadcast started that way, right? Troy's like pouring a coffee and it cuts to camera. He's like, oh, that would be better. It just would be. I'm glad that we have both. And honestly, like it's the complete opposite with Peyton and Eli because Eli is the most emotionalist, deadpan <laughs> facial expression no matter what happens. Like he barely even has inflection in his voice. And it's just him and Peyton together, it's 
you know, the brother aspect of it, obviously the wealth of NFL experience, but it's just also who they are as people and how you could tell neither of them have gone to broadcast school in the slightest, not even like online broadcast school. They basically just built a studio for these guys in their houses and said, yeah, all right, just watch the game, and yeah. we're just going to record you while you're watching the game. The and, whole thing. Uh, it, it, is, it is made for some pretty great moments. The whole thing works because Peyton Manning is naturally funny, like un, un, like undeservedly so, right? For a guy that's as good as he was at football, he also happens right. to be genuinely hilarious as a human being. And like what the vehicle is just essentially teeing him up to crack jokes or tell stories. That's the show. It doesn't even matter what's happening on the field or if it's a football game like it's just the Peyton Manning experience Eli Manning's good enough at like prodding him or you know right. setting him up with punchlines that he's worth having there as well but like that's the show it's figuring out how to make Peyton Manning crack jokes or tell stories to me the best moments are actually when he's unironically funny like when you can tell Peyton hates watching bad football <laughs> so much that he's he's he is rooting for the Broncos last night, right? Yeah, I yeah. mean, at, at one point he said "our ball," you know, when there was a fumble, yeah. he's like, "That's our ball," and Eli called him out for it. He's like, "Oh, our ball, huh? It's been eight years, and you still think you're on the team?" And that's obviously funny. But then at the end of the game, the Broncos make the kick and get a massive road win on prime time on Monday Night Football in Buffalo. And Peyton, you can tell, is just still so pissed. <laughs> Because Buffalo blew that game by having 12 men on the field. You can tell yeah. he's more pissed at Buffalo than he is happy for the team he even played for that they got a big road victory. And uh, that's the unironic funny part of Peyton Manning that I think also. It's is. true. It's also like it's compelling to watch. Like it is funny that the thing that his hierarchy of like emotional investment is good slash bad football first. Whatever it is he's Correct. rooting for is secondary, but like his allegiance during a game to what he wants to happen will change based off like what is happening. Like he'll be, he'll want the Bills to get the pass. Like once the pass is in the air, he'll want the receiver to catch it, even if it's bad for his team. And if he doesn't, like if it's a drop pass, he'll be more annoyed by that than he is happy that it, that it benefited his team because the guy dropped it. It's fascinating to actually watch that play out in the guy's brain. Yep. I agree. This is what makes for a great broadcast. All right. We'll get into the actual football. Uh, but first, we got to talk to you about life insurance and securing your family's financial future. Thanks to our friends over at Gerber Life. Um, Fabric by Gerber Life makes it quick, easy, and affordable to protect your family uh, so you can get back to enjoying life. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. Get your personalized quote in minutes and then apply when it's convenient for you. It's all online and on your schedule. You could go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in minutes at meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. That's meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash PFFNFL. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states, prices subject to underwriting and health questions. All right, so the game itself, Trev, um, this was a strange game where I think generally speaking this season, Buffalo's defense has been a bigger problem than their offense. 
I think mm-hmm. the defense generally did quite a good job in this game, and yet the offense had another one of those games where they basically melted down and turned the ball over a bunch of times. Dude, I can't sum up the Buffalo Bills any better than this. The Bills can beat any team in this league. They can also lose to any team in this league. Every single week, you do not know what you're going to get. So much had to go wrong for the Bills to lose that game last night. And every single one of them went wrong. You had fumbles by Josh Allen and by players not named Josh Allen. You had multiple interceptions from Josh Allen. You had crazy mind-numbing penalties, including the one at the very end of the game when you thought, I mean, they basically escaped. They escaped with that win, and yet they couldn't have it. At the very end, they continued to shoot themselves with a foot. And it's it's not just like the, the saying where you're shooting yourself in the foot. They've got a revolver, and the revolver, the chambers are full. Like, they're unloading on their foot every (laughs) single game. And it's just, it's crazy how the Bills do this. Because when you look at the two um, long drives that they had, this offense was humming. You you look at the the two longest drives that they had that ended up in points, you go, this team could score against anybody. They made that look incredibly easy, especially when they are playing that complimentary football, actually getting the running game involved. But um, Joe Marino, who does a great job covering uh, the Bills on, on Lockdown Bills and does a lot of other stuff, I was listening to his his podcast earlier this morning because I like to get his thoughts on the team because he covers it very well. And you know, I agree with what he said. They're not getting takeaways on defense, which means every single drive for them on offense is a really long drive. And you're demanding this offense to be play really well, and it has. You know, Like I said, when it looks good, you feel like this team's invincible. But without the turnovers that they're generating on defense and with the plethora of turnovers that they continue to give away on offense, they are just making things so difficult for themselves and they're putting themselves far further beyond the eight ball than they should no matter who they're playing. It almost doesn't really matter. So to me, uh, yeah, going back to it, the Bills to me are just a team that it's hard to look at them and say, well, yeah, if they fix this, if they fix this, if they fix this, because it just seems like it's something different every single week. It's almost just like, okay, don't have the boneheaded penalties. Okay, don't turn the ball over. Okay, don't fumble the football. And all those things just keep happening. They just keep happening. And they're not they're not balancing out the turnovers that they have on offense with a lot of turnovers on defense this season. And I think that that is something that's really the reason why they're ultimately sitting here at 5-5. Five and five. But it's just, this is a wild team, man. This is a team where, if you told me, they're going to be picking in the top 10 of the NFL draft this year. I'd go, okay. If you told me that this team's going to make the playoffs and go on some kind of crazy wild card playoff run, I'd go, okay. That's just where I am with the, with the Buffalo Bills. You just never know every single week. Yeah, I want to get save that a little bit until uh, later, talking about sort of what their outlook is going to be for the rest of the season. But focusing on the game itself for a second, obviously the turnovers were a huge part of it. I mean, um, James Cook fumbles early in the game. He hadn't fumbled since, remember, he came in last year and I think his very first touch or his very first carry, he fumbled the ball like yeah. in the NFL and then hadn't fumbled since. Like, had, had gotten back into the good books, had become a much bigger part of the offense. And then last night was the first fumble since that very first carry in the NFL. And then later in the game, he does this, like, weird – he basically dribbles the ball to himself. It, like, pops <laughs> right. out, bounces right by, back into his hands mid-stride. Right. Like, doesn't even have to break stride to catch it again and carries yeah. on going. That could have been another one. But the turnovers are just killing them because they're not – 
they're not efficient enough right now at everything else to overcome those turnovers. And, you know, you look at Josh Allen's passing map from last night. It feels like there's nothing easy at the moment. It's all being set up for him to make like a crazy difficult pass from the far hash layering over a, you know, a defender underneath and putting it in a window. And it's like, can we find something easy for the guy to do rather than asking every pass to be, you know, to require Josh Allen's physical skill set to be complete? Right. And it's the thing is that they're not, uh, well, I guess I, I don't have the numbers up in front of me from the last couple of years, but it feels like they're not even converting on those big shots nearly as often as they used to. Not that they don't have any. I still think they're, like you said, on the drives where they make it look good, they are pushing the ball deep down the field, and you see Josh Allen, and he wows you, and he reminds you of why he's one of the most talented quarterbacks in the league. But they're not nearly as efficient going deep down the field, and I think some of that has to do with their pass catchers right now and why a lot of Buffalo Bills fans are clamoring for a first-round wide receiver coming up this year because they're not trusting Gabe Davis, even though Gabe Davis led the team in receiving yards last night, which I don't think that they want that to be the script. But they're not trusting Gabe Davis. They don't have another receiver outside of Stephon Diggs. Dawson Knox has been hurt. Uh, they like what Dalton Kincaid's going to be, but I think that you need more than him anyways. So then you throw in, even beyond the turnovers, man, the drops. Yeah. Like the drops killed him at the beginning of the game. Like, you got it. This is a very difficult game, but it's like, come on, you got to catch the football. Like, Dalton Kincaid had an opportunity to catch football for a big first down. Gabe Davis had a big opportunity to catch the ball for the first down in the first half of that game. And maybe those catches make all the difference in the world, certainly in a game that ended as close as it did. So it's just mix it, miss execution, bad defense that we've seen throughout the season. Obviously, it was better last night. You got turnovers, penalties. Like, it just... Every way this team can get in its own way, it does. And it certainly all came to fruition last night. And that's that's the only reason why they lose that game. This I don't want to, I don't want to take anything away from, from Denver, who I think... When they got 70 points hung on them by the, the Miami Dolphins, I think everybody just kind of figured that the Dolphins would, or sorry, the Broncos would be a laughing stock this year. They haven't been. Like they have steadily been becoming a better football team. And I thought last night they played better as a football team, but they shouldn't have won that game. The Bills absolutely held themselves back from winning that football game. Yeah. So definitely. I don't, I don't mean to take anything away from them, but like that's just, that's the truth in the matter. No, absolutely. I mean, you look at that game and it was Denver was playing pretty well. And Buffalo was playing terribly, and it was for the majority of the game, and yet it never got away from them. Like it was very, it was always close. You're looking at the score constantly, and like this couldn't be going much better for Denver or much worse for Buffalo, and Denver's still only up like a touchdown. Like this, this, it just takes Buffalo to wake up for 10 seconds, and this game is back in, in their control. And it kind of did get to that point, and then, you know, they obviously screwed it up at the end, but. It, what you're sort of describing there in terms of Buffalo shooting themselves in the foot repeatedly, it reminds me a lot of basically how I've been describing Green Bay this season, which is like they there's just mistakes everywhere, and they're not it's not necessarily the volume, it's it's the timing and the fact that they're spread out amongst everybody, and they're not good enough to overcome that volume of mistakes. Like there are other teams that make a similar volume of mistakes, but they're making a ton of big plays so that they can offset that and it doesn't really matter. And this has really been Josh Allen's career in the NFL is, you know, he's on that Jameis Winston spectrum of 
high volatility, a lot of bad, a lot of good. Um, mm-hmm. And you just sort of accept that as, as kind of the style of quarterback that he is. But this season, like the, the, the volume of good has come way down. It's still pretty decent, but like his big time throw rate is down over two percentage points. He's, they're just not good enough to overcome. You know, they didn't have, I think they have four drops, which is not catastrophic, but all four of them were like critical first down plays that should have moved the, the chains, kept right. the drive alive, right. and didn't. Um, the fumbles, the interception, like it's, these are, are the two interceptions. Um, it's just somehow the timing, and, and they're not efficient enough outside of that to actually overcome those mistakes anymore. It's, it, that's why last night is really hard for me to actually have a takeaway from the Buffalo Bills outside of the fact that, again, it does not change my opinion to think that the Buffalo Bills can beat any team in the league. Uh, maybe it changed my opinion a little bit in the opposite direction when I say that now they can lose to every single team in the league because, <laughs> again, they're, they're, you, you, you hit it right there. Everything went wrong for this team. It was crucial drops. It was penalties. It was turnovers. It was everything that could have crushed momentum of this team or continuing drives, getting more points on the board. It happened. And it it, it took a special team's 12 men on the field penalty for them to still lose that football game. And that ended up happening. So, um, man, it's just, it's wild to think about where this team is. And again, if we go down the second half of this schedule, and this team makes it in the wild card, and they end up winning two, three games in the playoffs, I'm not going to be shocked because they have the ability to do that. They've just had a lot of things that hold them back. It's still within their identity, but they have shown that the margin for error, I think, is a lot smaller this year than it was in years past because they don't have that potency in the passing game like they did before. One thing I was thinking about last night that I've only just remembered I was thinking. Um, I wonder if this general approach this season of, you know, it, it's been coming for a while, but the way defenses have been fighting back, playing more too high coverage shells, forcing everybody underneath, like the whole approach of the NFL on defense in the last two or three years has been let's try and take away explosive plays, force quarterbacks mm-hmm. to play more patient, um, take the underneath stuff, just change the style of offense that they have. I wonder if that's disproportionately negatively affected Josh Allen versus these other top-end quarterbacks. Like, is he just inherently less capable of being patient than some of these other guys? Like, Mahomes has, I think, shown an impressive discipline to be able to change his game and go away from the Tyreek Hill-type chunk plays to killing you by a thousand paper cuts, right? Tom Brady did that in his career as well. Um, right. he's shown the ability to morph and to become a different quarterback and take whatever is there. I will do whatever whatever is the best way of winning this game. That's how I want to play the game. I don't care what else, you know, what I don't care which way it is. I don't have like an investment in a style of offense. I just want to win the game. I do kind of wonder whether Allen has shown relative to some of these other quarterbacks that he is not as good at just being patient and taking the easy stuff and wants to take that shot, wants to have that kill shot, you know, wants to hit the cover two hole because it's 20 yards downfield and it, it moves, you know, it's, it's three plays worth of offense. I, I just wonder if defenses in today's NFL are actually hurting him more than they're hurting some of the other top quarterbacks. Yeah, I, I wonder if they think that they have 
because I, I, I wonder what the problem is. I think it's easy to say, like, maybe it is a Josh Allen thing. And shoot, maybe it is. Like, maybe he just does not see those smaller throws, those death by a thousand paper cuts kind of a thing. Like, we've seen the best quarterbacks kind of adapt to do. You mentioned a couple of names there. I just looked it up really quick because I was curious. Do they even have the personnel to do that, right? Because I think that, okay, you look at, say, the Chiefs. Chiefs offense right now, basically, if you look at all their pass catchers, it's just short stuff. Like, it's just athletes. It's smaller athletes. Let's get them open early. Let's get the ball in their hands, and let's let them, like, do things with yards after the catch. You know, you talk about, all right, the Brady years, like Wes Welker, Julian Edelman, Gronkowski's in there as well. Like, these are big, just yards after catch type of pass catchers. And I don't really know if the bills have the personnel like i don't even know if they have those types of pass catchers and i just looked this up very quickly receiving yards after the catch per reception this year the bills are 26th in the nfl with 4.7 dead last in the nfl is the cardinals at 4.2 and then the panthers also have 4.2 so they're not too far off from that i mean their total yards after the catch is a lot higher i think they're in the top 10 yeah they're ninth in total yards after the catch but um and that's because they're also top five in reception. So just you have that kind of volume. So from an average standpoint, they are bottom, what is that? Bottom sixth in the league when it comes to yards after the catch. And I think it's an interesting question to bring up. Why is that the case? Because I do think that Josh Allen has been struggling more against two high safeties than other, what we would consider elite top five quarterbacks. Is that a Josh Allen root of the problem? Is it a the types of weapons that they have on the team kind of problem. Maybe it's Ken Dorsey thing. Like is Ken Dorsey just still developing the offense or constructing the offense to take these shots, no matter what. I just wonder what the root cause of it is. Cause there's no doubt about it that I agree with you. That that is a problem of their passing game, but they've still been able to generate pretty high EPA per play when it comes to a lot of their offensive um, outputs. So is working. And I think that at times, it's just frustrating when it doesn't work to this extent and you lose a game that you never should have lost. It's also so. potentially, yeah, I mean, maybe the thing is not that it's um, that it's sort of disproportionately hurting a team like this in terms of ability to, um, like, move the ball, have success, but what it does is potentially make those volatile quarterbacks less good. Like, it's harder. So, you know, you could, you could take a lot of bad like Josh Allen has always had a pretty high turnover-worthy play rate, but he's always been like to the moon in terms of big-time throw rate, and mm-hmm. you, those offset a lot of mistakes. But if defenses across the board are actually chipping into that number, like you just can't have that volume of big plays, we are taking those away. Now the mistakes become a bigger problem because you're not able to offset it with a play next drive, right, immediately, like bam, done. Now we're 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 a wash again, and then the next drive we're ahead. Like now, it actually takes you a long period of time to chip back and take away that big mistake again. So maybe that actually is the issue. It's not that it's not that they've completely killed this Bills offense, but it's it's sort of killed the explosiveness of the Bills offense, and that was what was offsetting the mistakes that they've always made, and right. that that is where the issue lies. Um, Man, I'm just hold on. I I just wanted to mention this. Bills still after last night, number two in the NFL in total EPA per play. And they are number one in the NFL in positive EPA per play percentage. Right. So the amount of times that you are having a positive EPA per play, they are number one and number two. But then when you look at takeaways, 
They are number two in the NFL, 18 total giveaways this year. So it's just like, God, this offense has looked so good at times. And and at times it's just like they are humming to a point where you can't even stop them. But with the amount of takeaways that they have this year, um, it is even holding a top three offense back. Uh, to this extent from what we saw last night. So let's talk about the crazy sequence at the end of the game because this has been a fairly humdrum game almost all the way through it. Uh, Buffalo scores. They go up a touchdown late in the game. Uh, and it, it was, you know, they had been driving for only a couple of minutes and they score with the classic like two-minute situation, right? Josh Allen scrambles, runs it in. Uh, and then it's Denver has a classic it's almost exactly two-minute drive, right? Russell Wilson gets the ball, un- slightly under two minutes left. Is he going to score the touchdown? Is he going to get the win? Uh, is he, or is he going to, sorry, score the the field goal, get the win? Plenty of time to operate. And Buffalo's defense was hyper aggressive on this drive. Like they went zero blitz multiple times, came after Russell Wilson, uh, were not content to just play soft and let him, you know, pick up the yardage. They were like, if you're going to find a play, you're going to do it under heavy duress and make something happen. And ultimately, the biggest play to put them into, into the range was all-out zero blitz. Jerry Judy one-on-one with Teron Johnson deep down the field, wildly underthrown deep ball and yeah. pass interference. Yeah. Um, the pass interference one is, uh, I don't know, funny is probably not the word, but like that way it was horrendously overthrown. Now, Judy had him beat by a mile. Right. So I don't feel too bad about giving out the flag because if Russell does put that ball in the bread basket for Judy, he's got basically four yards of separation. So like he won the route. He actually won that. Uh, I don't feel as bad about the, uh, about that flag, getting them in a field goal range. But, you know, looking at the kind of like the Broncos just offensive output in their total production last night, there's not a ton of things that would wow you from the stat sheet, right? Cortland Sutton led this game with 53 total receiving yards. Sorry, led, led the Broncos, I should say, with 53 total receiving yards on eight catches. So it, it's not like this guy was giving you all sorts of explosive chunk plays. The touchdown was absolutely sick, him dragging both yeah. his toes. But yeah, Javante Williams has a couple of really nice runs last night, but still 21 carries, 79 total yards, only 3.8 yards per carry average. Russell Wilson, less than 200 yards passing. He had the two touchdowns, didn't turn the ball over, but it's they didn't blow you out of the water. But I liked where the Broncos were going, at least. It felt like last year, especially, this team wouldn't have even given you those big moments. I feel like the stat sheet for the Broncos could have looked very similarly to a game last year. But this year, even though they're not quite there with the explosives, they give you those big moments. There were a handful of really nice runs that either set up second or third and short or allowed them to convert. I think the same can be said with a lot of passes as well. So it's not perfect, but I do think that the Broncos and Russell Wilson are going in the right direction. And, and Wilson needed a total reset after last year. And I think this year has been better for him when it's come to mitigating turnovers, at least. You know, he's not this crazy high big time throw guy that he was at times when he was in Seattle. But 
he really, I, to me, had to take a step back and say, okay, 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 let me get the bad throws under control first, then we can work forward with the explosives. So um, I know Russell Wilson has been a big butt of a lot of jokes throughout the last couple of seasons, but truth of the matter is, He's going to be this team's quarterback next year. I mean, the dead cap for them to not play him or move on from him is still pretty crazy. Now, the year after that, you get a lot more flexible, and he could potentially move on after that. But I I, I am seeing building blocks for why you can believe that the Broncos are at least moving in the right direction with both him and Sean Payton. And um, even though the moments were, I almost say like little or smaller, but even though they weren't as ex- ex- these explosive plays, these crazy explosive plays that we remember from last night, they had a handful of really efficient, good plays that meant a lot to me as a building block moving forward for where this Broncos offense is going. Do you think that uh, the zero blitz strategy in that final drive was the correct one against Russell Wilson, or should they have sat back and played, you know, safer? I don't mind it. I, I really don't because how many times do we get on shows like this and complain about prevent defense, right? How how many times do we just complain so much about soft coverage and letting them march down the field and letting them get in a field goal range? You kind of got to pick what you want to do. And I don't mind the aggressive nature of it because even though Russell Wilson has been an escape artist throughout the last couple of years, a lot of his best time as an escape artist has been in Seattle. And certainly over the last year and a half, he hasn't been great at that and i i for that reason i don't mind trying to overwhelm a quarterback if they haven't shown you that they are really excellent against the blitz i I like the i like the thought of being aggressive i really do and can it burn you sometimes absolutely it can we saw it last night and we've seen it before but there's plenty of times when you know whether it's at the end of the game or not we'll see on a crucial third down You you just you bring six guys, seven guys, eight guys to the pocket, and you just overwhelm them. The quarterback has no time to think. The hot rate is covered well. You predicted it very well, and there's too many guys for the blockers up front. So it's just the game of risk that you play. But I, I did not mind the call from Buffalo. I, re- I really didn't. Um, and then we, get to the, <laughs> then we get to the crazy field goal sequence. So what I think the most interesting thing about this was, okay, Denver had, for some reason, made an absolute mess of kicks during the course of this game. They'd already made a mess of two of them. Uh, This was the third one that they screwed up in some capacity by just missing it this time. But there was also this dynamic of they didn't have any more timeouts and they they weren't able to completely chew up the entire clock. So Peyton Manning was calling for them to kick the field goal on third down, right? So you could have the clock stopped and not have to worry about like running the field goal team onto the field within 20 mm-hmm. seconds to try and make this happen quickly. He's like, just kick it on third down. You, you, you're then the whole sequence is sort of at your uh, discretion. And then, yeah, okay. The downside of that is you leave, you know, 20 seconds on the clock for Buffalo to potentially try and answer. But the alternative is you have to take that third down play. And then run like hell and get the field goal team on and try and kick it. Like whatever we call it, a mayday uh, field goal is what he calls it. And that's what they went with. And I don't know if that contributed to the missing, but it it kind of helped, right? Like the field goal sequence, you want that guy to be, you know, 
calm, <laughs> like in, in control, poised, not like already gassed from having to sprint on from the sideline, get hustled, get set, and be ready to go in 20 seconds. Yeah. I, I don't I don't think I would have done it. <laughs> I think I don't know. I it's I think everybody has just flashbacks to the to the Kansas City Chiefs, the 13 seconds, the everything like that, where like if there is just one single second on the board for any of the elite QBs that uh you're worried that, that it's gonna come back and burn you. I, I don't I again I don't know if I would have done it the way that they did it last night. I probably would have gone with what Peyton Manning said and just kicked the field goal on third down. Um because I, I do, you know, even though they got it off, kicking is—it's such a mental thing. It's and if you feel, if you feel rushed in any way, shape, or form, I would not want to put any sort of negative energy right. at all into my kicker's head. So I think that I would have agreed with Peyton Manning there. I probably would have just kicked it on third. And then getting bailed out by twelve men on the field—just a staggeringly terrible defensive penalty. I. I don't understand how that happens. I mean, the picture of Josh Allen on the sideline, like, what just happened? Mm-hmm. I get it. I mean, yeah, I understand it completely. That that can happen. That's an egregious mistake by somebody, and probably multiple people, and literally cost them the game. I also don't... I am probably just way over, oversimplifying it, but, like, don't you just have, like, a primary, like, field goal block team? Yeah. You would think like what like right like right like wouldn't you say like hey first team field goal block team in and if that's not you you probably shouldn't run onto the field I don't know but <laughs> I'm, pro- I'm probably way 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 oversimplifying it obviously a lot of things were moving very very fast right so it was moving fast for the Broncos they had to pull it off but so did the Bills obviously and and they didn't so um, yeah man, I mean. What a, what a tough way to lose that game. It would be interesting just hearing the breakdown of exactly why it happened in the first place. Like, so in order for there to be a 12th man on, the 12th guy presumably thinks the 11th man is not there anymore. So how did that happen? Like, what did the 12th guy see to think he had to run onto the field? Like, there must have been some indication that somebody was hurt or missing or something for that guy to be on in the first place. Like, what the hell... How does that even happen? Who yeah. gave him the information that was clearly incorrect at the time? I need I need details because that uh, yeah. is insane. We needed we need to go back and find the film of them like running onto the field. Like, right. is there a you know like is there some sort of confusion? Is everybody very confidently running onto the field? Is there a guy who was like on off on like didn't know whether he was supposed to be on, and so he ran on anyways, but. I would love to see that. Somebody in the somebody in the comments, I just I just looked at it, said counterfeit builds. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever heard that one before. That's good. That's Pretty a good clever. pun. Impressive. Pretty I like clever. that. Um, I don't know if I, I don't know if I fully agree with it. Well, but it is clever. We will we'll talk about that and the Broncos in just a second, get the final uh, bow put on this. But first uh, we got to tell you about our friends at Prize Picks. This podcast is brought to you by Prize Picks. Uh, last week, our guy Zach Tentillo, he's ba- he's down bad. Look, Lamar Jackson is not doing him any favors. He keeps putting it on Lamar Jackson. Lamar's going to have o- uh, more than whatever his uh, touchdown number is, and he's not getting in the end zone. No matter how many points the Baltimore Ravens put up, Lamar does not appear to be part of it. So. 
Zach Tantillo was only one for two last week on the prize picks. But how does prize picks work? Uh, well, for a start, with basketball season here, you can now pick combo projections across football and basketball from the Specials League, a league created specifically for combo projections that includes two or more players from different sports or leagues. For example, LeBron James and Travis Kelsey at a 10.5 combo of three-pointers made and catches. Uh, Want to play alongside some of Price Picks' favorite players like rapper Meek Mill and comedian Andrew Schultz? You can now find community plays under the Promos tab of the app to view entries from some of the biggest names in the Price Picks community each week. Price Picks even offers a reboot policy so that your entries stay in play even if one of your players gets injured. For football and basketball games, if you have a player who exits the game in the first half and does not return in the second, that player is rebooted. Price Picks is the only daily fantasy sports platform with an injury insurance policy. Go to pricepicks.com forward slash PFFNFL and use code PFFNFL for a first deposit match up to $100. Again, that's pricepicks.com forward slash PFFNFL and use code PFFNFL for a first deposit match up to $100. Go there and show that you can do better than our guy, Zach Tantillo. Um, all right. So we're not sure if uh, it is, in fact, the, what was it, the counterfeit bills. Um, mm. are, so I tweeted last night, like, are, all of a sudden, Cincinnati drops a game to Houston, Buffalo drops another one here, and those are the two teams that were sort of, the Bengals dug themselves a hole early, the Bills are digging themselves a hole the further the season goes on. We expected those two teams to be serious playoff contenders, and I don't know that they're still not, but it's getting harder. And I'm kind of looking at this and like, are the Bills and the Bengals going to end up being the team like battling it out for the final wild card spot, and one of them ends up sitting at home during playoff time? Oh, and, and everyone on Twitter, obviously, the last thing you saw is the most important thing. So the entirety of Twitter after last night is like, no, the Bills stink. They're getting nowhere near the playoffs. They're going to win five games. They suck. So where are they going from here? What does the season look like for this Buffalo team that we can't uh, put our finger on what they are? I mean, it's, it is kind of crazy to, to think that both the Bengals and the Bills would be fighting for that last playoff spot in the AFC. You'd think that over the second half of the season, things bounce out a little bit more and both of those teams would get in. But both of them on the outside looking in right now and – we don't have it updated for week 11 yet, but prior to this past week, the Bills had the hardest schedule remaining in the NFL, and the Bengals had the third high, the third most difficult. So it's not like the schedule gets a lot easier for these teams to come back and just get some cheap wins here to make sure that they get right. themselves into the playoffs. I, I think with both of these teams kind of sitting the way that they are, I'm less worried about the Bengals. I think the Bengals are going to be a playoff team. I think there is a crazy reality where maybe even all four teams in the AFC North actually make the playoffs. But I'm less worried about the Bengals than I am with the Bills because, again, the volatility of that team, your margin for error at this point sitting at 5-5 five and five is very, very, very slim. You cannot have more than one game like you had last night where you lose a game that you shouldn't have, that you – Deserve is such a trick word in this league, but like you, you cannot shoot yourself in the foot that much. I, I know I've used that analogy a lot this week, but 
if you have more than one of those games moving forward, the Bills just straight up are not going to make the playoffs. And that is that is going to be devastating for a team that, for all of its inconsistencies right now, is still at the tail end of what was a, what has been a three, four-year winning window. This still should be a year where they have a chance to compete for a deep playoff run. And the way that they're playing is is not up to that par. So, yeah, it I, is. I, again, I've got more faith in the Bengals than I have in the Bills, but it's crunch time for both these teams. They got to figure it out and play their best ball moving forward. It's a brutal schedule for the Bills going forward. I mean, they have the Jets up next. Um, and okay, the Jets have Zach Wilson, a quarterback, but their defense is nasty. And remember, week one was when Josh Allen absolutely melted down against that defense. Then they're mm-hmm. on the road against Philadelphia, on the road against Kansas City, home against Dallas, on the road against the Chargers, oh. home against New England, and then on the road in week 18 against Miami. So if they're going to make the playoffs, they're going to have to earn it. I mean, it's not going to get given to them. But, I mean, yeah, they're they're... They're not, A, number one, they're not too far out of the picture, right? They're like half a game behind the Texans in that for that final wildcard spot. And, okay, Cincinnati is ahead of them in that, in that situation, but, you know, they're not out of the picture by any means at all. And then the other thing is we know, and we, you've said already, like they're capable of beating any of those teams, right? Mm-hmm. Now they just need to beat enough of them to make it work. But if Buffalo finds itself, if they find their best play – they're not going out just because of the schedule. Like, they can go on a run and beat enough of those teams and make the playoffs that way. But, and the other thing is, you know, as, as feisty, as unexpectedly feisty as Houston has been, you kind of expect them to fall off a little bit, or you wouldn't be surprised if they did. Cincinnati have already put themselves in, in the kind of spot where they're only half a game better off than Buffalo at this stage. So, yeah, coming out of that game, you're not exactly confident in Buffalo doing anything, but they are kind of this Jekyll and Hyde team, and it really wouldn't surprise you if they won enough of those games. They're not out of playoff contention just because they're sitting here at 500. No, and and I agree with you. And in fact, hearing you read off that schedule with them being 5-5, and if the Bills end up making the playoffs, you're probably going to think about them as a top three team in the NFL, right? Because if they make the playoffs from being 5-5 and here... right they're going to have to beat some really good football teams in order to do it. So especially that last game against Miami, like if that game is anywhere close to the division being on the line and they play really well, and maybe even if they beat Miami going into the playoffs, you're going to say to yourself, damn, they struggled early on in the season. There's a lot of fixable reasons why they struggled early in the season. And if they're playing their best ball moving forward, you would talk about this team as probably being one of the top three teams in the playoff field, both AFC and NFC, if they are able to make it. But it all kind of just depends how they looked at this point. But yeah, if if you're going to make it, you got to beat some really good teams in order to get there. So um, it's, but yeah, it, it kind of comes down to there is no, slipping into the playoffs for the buffalo bills right. i don't think so then they're, they're, either, they're either going to become the potential of what they have to be or they're going to be sitting on the couch when the uh opening weekend opens up and then the other side of this is the denver broncos have now won three straight um four out of the last six and from a position where that defense had 70 hung on them and looked catastrophically terrible like historically bad they mm-hmm. haven't just improved They've actually turned like 180 and are ranking amongst the best defenses in the league over the last few weeks. 
Like, and, and Russell Wilson is quietly playing quite well. It, you know, earlier in the season, nobody noticed because the defense was so bad it didn't matter. Now it's a little more obvious because the defense is holding up its end of the bargain and they're now winning games again, including against good teams. How much better can this get for Denver over the over, down the stretch? So on my podcast I do with Connor Rogers, the NFL Stock Exchange podcast, um, the most recent episode that we did yesterday was when will these bad teams make the playoffs again? And we recorded it before Monday Night Football, so we did it for the teams that were picking in the top 15 at the time. Broncos had the number nine overall draft pick before the game last night. So we talked about the Broncos. They were one of our teams. Connor said that they would make the playoffs in 2025, so two years from now. I said 2024. I think this team could be a playoff team next year. Like I think they're a little too far behind the eight ball. They'll be a legitimate playoff contender this season. But I have believed in where they were going even before last night. I like the pieces that they're still going to have on defense. I like a lot of the pieces they have on offense. It's just been a really bad version of those things, certainly last year. But it's gotten better this year. Like I said, I think this team is absolutely progressing. I think Russell Wilson is kind of going back to the studs. He's going back to the foundation, and he's trying to build back up from there. He's not trying to be Seattle because last year, it felt like Russell Wilson was trying to be this let Russ cook Seattle version of Russell just on a different team. And it was abysmal. It just did not work. I think he's a lot different this year. Like I said, I think he's more risk averse. I think that he is seeing the field differently. He's not taking as many chances. He's understanding how much that hurt him last year and that things are looking different this year. I think the receiver room is going to be upgraded. It's going to be different from what was last year. I think they're going to have uh, the opportunity to draft a couple of new studs as well. And I think that they've already got a really good foundation. Plus, Sean Payton, I I have a lot of faith in Sean Payton. I think he's been one of the best coaches over the last couple of decades. So I think they're going in the right direction. I don't think they're a playoff team this year. But legitimately, if the Chargers continue to not play up to their potential, I think Staley's probably out. And depending on who they get at head coach, it might be a you're taking off a year of really calling the Chargers contenders because they got – they got to revamp a lot of that defense. I know Justin Herbert's amazing. I love Herbert, but like they got to revamp a ton of that defense, I think, over the next couple of years. So new head coach, a lot of new defensive pieces for them. I, I don't know what the situation's going to be for the Raiders. And the Broncos could easily be the second-best team in that division next year. I think they could absolutely compete for a playoff spot, and I'm not calling them over the Chiefs or anything. But to me, how Denver has looked gives me a lot of faith that they can be a legitimate playoff contender next season. All right, we're going to talk uh, draft running backs in just a second. But first, it's not a bird. It's not a plane. It's the most revolutionary ball trimmer the world has ever seen. Gentlemen, our friends over at Manscaped have been working night and day to bring you a below-the-waist grooming experience like none other with their brand-new Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. We're talking about a next-generation trimmer with interchangeable blade heads for whatever shave your mind can imagine. AI is cool, but I think this might be the biggest technological advancement the world has ever seen. Upgrade your grooming game to the Ultrasphere this year by going to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with the code PFF. High-tech for low places, Manscaped. Every man knows how scary it can get when going for a close shave below the belt. That's why I trust Manscaped for all my sensitive areas. Inside this package, you'll find the star of the show, the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. Their fifth-generation trimmer features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, a standard one for taking a little off the top. 
and a new foil blade to go smooth wherever your heart desires. We also have dual LED spotlights to provide contrast on multiple skin tones, three length setting combs, and did I mention this trimmer is waterproof. No more wet shaving down there, count me in. Taking it on the go, Manscaped has you covered. This puppy comes with a travel case and even a travel lock feature to avoid any accidental powering on and or weird looks in the airport. This right here is on the cutting edge of cutting pubes. Upgrade your ball trimmer and your life will follow. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code PFF at manscaped.com. It's 20% off plus free shipping with the code PFF at manscaped.com. I can promise you've never seen a ball trimmer look like a spaceship. Get yours today from our folks at Manscaped. All right, Trev, I asked you, as is our custom here, for uh, we're going to do a different position when it comes to the draft. I was like, all right, who are the names? Who are the top names I need to know about when it comes to running backs? And you're like, well, there's no good running backs. So here's a list of five <laughs> guys to look at anyway. I didn't say there's no good running backs. I said that there is um... – most likely not a first round running back within this group. Uh, you know, last year there was a lot of talk of Bijan Robinson. Um, it wasn't really just is this guy a first round caliber running back? It was more of how high do you take this guy in the draft? And so the conversation is a lot different this year. Unfortunately, and this really sucks, Jonathan Brooks, who is at Texas, who is behind Bijan Robinson and Roshan Johnson, he's having an incredible year as a redshirt sophomore this year. He just tore his ACL this past week. I had elevated him to run to RB1 in this class a couple of weeks ago. Um, I just felt like he he was just the total package on on everything that he could have offered an NFL team. And I still didn't really think that he was going to be a first-round pick, but I felt like he was going to be the best of the bunch. But now that he is out for the season, he's somebody who has an interesting case for maybe still declaring anyways, even if mm. he is recovering from an ACL, because... He's just a redshirt sophomore. This was his first year as a full-time starter. So there's not a lot of there's not a lot of like wear and tear on that dude. I, I know he's coming off an injury and that sucks, right. but you can't really change that part of it now. As of right now, you only have one year where you're taking a lot of hits. He's young. He's got good speed. He's got size. He's six foot tall, 205, 210 pounds. He's got a really nice force miss tackle per attempt average. Um, he's got a really nice yards after contact average as well, which are two statistics that are very important when you're trying to try to scout how a running back is playing individual from their offensive line. So he's really great in a lot of different categories. He had an elite rushing grade as well. Um, so he could still declare. I don't know if he's going to be RB1 with that injury anyways, but there are a handful of other players that I gave you to watch. I said, <laughs> two guys from Michigan. Blake Corum, Donovan Edwards. Give you Braylon Allen from Wisconsin. I gave you Bucky Irving from Oregon. And then I gave you Ray Davis from Kentucky. I should have given you Travion Henderson. That was on me, the Ohio State running back. But we can talk about him in a different episode. But where do you want to start? Who do you want to talk about first? Um, well, let's – so let's – I think that is an interesting conversation about whether Brooks should should come out anyway. Um, you know, in this in this world of running backs, you can argue that – a huge amount of a running back's prime career it, it takes place in college. So I don't know that there's any sense in going back. Like if he's already shown enough to make an NFL team go, yeah, that guy can play at this level, mm -hmm. you're just, you might as well declare re recover in the NFL, like even if it's right. going to set your initial, like the start of your career back. Because the important thing is not the rookie contract, it's the second contract and getting to the second contract as fast as possible because that's the one that's going to pay you the money so from from a 
from his point of view, I don't know that there's any sense whatsoever to going back to school. And from an NFL's team, from an NFL team's point of view, you're kind of fine knowing that, like, it's an ACL. It shouldn't be a problem long term. Sure, it means we're not going to have him right away. But, right. like, I don't see much downside from either side in declaring and coming out now, even though he's injured and it's probably going to hurt his draft stock a little bit. No, I don't really either. I think the thing that people go back to consistently is, well, he could be a first-round pick, and now he's not going to be. Right. I don't even know if you want to be a first-round pick, right? Because if you're going to be a first-round pick, obviously it's something cool. It's a personal achievement. You only go through the draft once. I understand that. And if, like, that means a lot to people, I'll never, I'll never like, fight them on it. But... If you look at it the other way around, like contract perspective, if you're not a first round pick, team doesn't get a fifth round option on you, right? I mean, like, if, if, I think that this year he probably wouldn't have been a first round pick anyways. I feel like Brooks would have been probably somewhere around mid second round range. Now with the ACL injury, all right, third round pick, late third round pick, something like that. You're probably still going to be a day two selection just because of how talented you were. And like you said, you can rehab from it, you can heal. And it's almost like it could work best case scenario because if you are easing your way back from that injury, your rookie year of the NFL, yeah. if you take over as a starting running back in year two of that contract, you only have three years in which you have to not get catastrophically hurt and then you cash out. And he is, I think, going to be 21 when the draft comes around, maybe 22. But you're cashing out at either 24 or 25 years old. Like that is very alluring so i agree with you i i think that when we see an injury like this we automatically just say like oh yeah he's coming back and he hasn't really been able to play a lot in college so maybe that is still like a dream of his you know texas is playing really well this year i think they're going to continue to play well with the quarterbacks that they have and everything so maybe he comes back wants to win a national championship wants to play more in college football that's fine but from a strictly bottom line business perspective you should probably still go yeah, particularly in the, when the class is weak, right? And even though he's Correct. injured and maybe he right. doesn't go in the first round, like he could still be running back one in this class because the class is that weak. Um, all right, we're going to get on to the other draft guys. But first, we have breaking news from Adam Schefter. Offensive coordinator for the Buffalo Bills, Ken Dorsey, has been fired this morning. Damn. So they are changing. <laughs> Damn. Oh, I just listed it off, man. Number one in the NFL. In positive EPA per play percentage. Yep. Number two in the NFL in overall EPA per play, and this dude gets fired. But the feels are bad, so we got to drop kick Ken Dorsey out of the building. That's cr- this is a this has got to be a Sean McDermott thing, right? Like this has got to be a hey, buddy, you fire Ken Dorsey, or you're like I'm firing you instead. <laughs> like, because because I, man, I under I know I get it. Like it's very inconsistent right now, but shit, a lot of that's on the players. Yeah, I mean, you gotta but, catch the ball. You gotta hold on to the ball. You gotta hit the play. You gotta hit the guy on the route. Like, oh man, maybe Ken Dorsey's not the answer. But it's hard for me to believe that somebody else in the Bills probably is moving forward. But hey, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's completely night and day. Maybe they only get the best version of the Buffalo Bills offense moving forward. Shoot, I know a lot of people have been calling for for his head, but I kind of thought that that was just fans being really mad at the moment. But damn, it's funny, like. It, Clear, you get this feeling clearly that something isn't right with that offense, and yet it is difficult to find stats where they're not 
in the top three. <laughs> like they're yes. they're number they're tied with the 49ers for the the joint best successful play percentage in the NFL this season. The only offense I think that has scored more touchdowns is Miami. Um, their touchdown drive rate is top three. You mentioned the EPA numbers. Like it's very difficult to find a number where they're not ranked amongst the top three offenses in the NFL, and yet. You, could, you get out of a game last night, and you're like, what the hell is wrong with this offense? Why is it not able to do what we know it's capable of doing? Wow, Joe Brady is the interim offense coordinator. Oh. Damn. Joe Brady, holy cow. That is, that is crazy. Joe Brady had that, that run at LSU right. where, he, where he wasn't even the play caller, and he has turned it into two offensive coordinator gigs. Well, yeah, so had that run at LSU, as you say, pass game coordinator with... Wasn't calling plays. Right. With, with Was not Joe Burrow, plays. Jamar Chase, Justin Jefferson, like right. the, some of the right. greatest collection of college talent of all time, yes. gets that offense coordinator gig in Carolina, basically off the back of that. Um, bombs there, effectively. That Man. goes disastrous, disastrously. He gets let go. And then he's been the quarterback's coach for the Bills after that. And now he gets elevated to this offense coordinator spot, interim, whatever, um, with Ken Dorsey's firing. So, I mean, look, nothing else. It's going to be interesting to see how things change, whether it's good or bad. I mean, this is the, like, yes, they've decided that Ken Dorsey is a problem or at least the thing that needs to change if we're going to go in the right direction. But if every statistic you can find has this offense ranking in the top three, there's probably quite a long way they could go down as well as up. Woo! I man, I don't know about this one, man. Like this, this to me really does seem like Sean McDermott is very much on the hot seat here. That's to me. That's the only reason why you make a move like this. With given how much offensive success you have had this season, I get that it goes hot and cold sometimes and you need more consistency out of it. And if the Bills were a little bit more consistent last night, they win that football game. But, cool. I don't know about this one. I don't know about this one, Sam. I don't like it. (laughs) I don't like it. It's definitely, it's not a... Maybe I'll get old takes exposed very hard. And as someone who likes the Buffalo Bills and wants to see them succeed, I will gladly be wrong. But this is... It's, this is a pretty wild decision for me for them to do at this time. It's not a move yeah. of confidence. You know, it's a move you make when you're kind of desperate and you're backed into a corner and things are going wrong and you're like, something's got to change. That guy's got to change. That's, <laughs> that, that's it. He's changing because that's the only thing I can think of right now. Let's do it. Uh, so, yeah, let's, let's see how that pans out. Um, okay, mm-hmm. back to the, the running back class. Uh, who do you want to start with? I I liked one guy quite a lot. No, who do you, no, who do you, who do you want to okay. start with? You tell me. You want to start with the guy that you liked? Yes. Let's okay. start with the one guy from the list you gave me that I definitely liked. And then there, there's another half that I kind of liked and then everyone else didn't love. Uh, okay. Blake Coram from Michigan. Okay. He's good. Like, very good. Mm-hmm. I He has the best blend of everything. I was getting, like, David Montgomery vibes from him. Um, like really good in short spaces, great vision, sets up defenders well, can yeah, glide. Yeah, feet of Le'Veon Bell, contact yeah. balance of Barry Sanders, you know, <laughs> long speed of right. Tyree Kill. 
Yeah, put it all together. Yeah, just the perfect running back. Um, <laughs> but, like, has that combination of being able to glide or jump cut, whichever is the best thing. The one thing, and this is like David Montgomery as well, albeit he's been doing this recently, but, like, lacks that final gear to pull away mm-hmm. from guys once he breaks into open space. Um, but that's really my only, like, negative from him. Is like he, he probably ends up running in the four, like the mid four fours, maybe a four or five flat. And it's like, if that's your biggest criticism, I'm, I'm in. Yeah, I like Blake Corum a lot, man. I uh, I thought about him as 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 RB two last year behind Bijan Robinson before he ended up getting hurt and then coming deciding that he was going to come back. He's the smartest running back to me in college football, and I've been really disappointed by the numbers this year. Like the yards after contact have been bad, the force missed tackle numbers have been bad, and that's just never been a case with him throughout his career. So I'm almost kind of throwing him out the window because there's still moments in his tape where he just shows you he's very smart. He sees the field very well. It, it's like uh, it's like the superhero, the Flash, where he it, he isn't getting like faster. Everything else is slowing down around him. That's how he sees clutter and chaos and the offensive line, and and he just does that so consistently well. You're right. It's just really the long speed because I think his contact balance is excellent as yeah. well. I think he's got soft hands as a receiver. He will give you everything that he has in pass protection. He really is the total package of a running back. The biggest issue is that he is five foot eight, and when and and. When I say that he is small for five foot eight, the the part of that that matters is actually the stride length. It's it's not taking contact. He's 210, 215 pounds. Yeah. Like this dude can bounce off contact. He and and he can pass block pretty well for a player of his size as well. But because he is only five foot ten, he has much shorter stride lengths. And that just means he covers less ground when he is putting his feet in the ground. So he is fast, he is quick. You see those legs churning at a good rate. He just doesn't cover nearly as much ground as a running back who would be 5'11", 6 foot, 6 foot 1, whatever it is, just because the stride length is so much bigger for those guys and, and those athletic players. So Corum, no question about it to me. I agree with you. The smartest back and the one who, to me, is going to be the most efficient one from this class. It's like a, it's like a rev limiter when you're that size, right? Correct. Like you just reach yes. a certain point, and then you bounce off the rev limiter, and you can't go any faster because your little legs are like, they, they can't, Correct. you know, you just don't have the distance. They can't what was that? Go. Can you do that again for the people at home? What was that? <laughs> that's that's what happens. He breaks into the open field, you get the little legs going, and then he, he, did, just, he can't, just can't go any faster. You hit the bounce off the rev limiter. Yeah, he'll also be older. You know, I think that he'll be... He might be 24 on draft day. He'll be 24 his rookie season. I've got to believe in the NFL. That's why I, I was really hoping that he would declare last year. 23 is, is different for a running back than saying that you're going to be 24. Because like we talked about in the contract discussion, right? Like, you're looking at four years from there. You're 28. Is he going to be? Is he going to be fully healthy until he is 28 years old? It's tough to believe for a running back. And even uh, even if he is, I certainly hope. Yeah, like uh, even if he is, we're in this landscape where like you're starting to look at the number 28 next to a running right, back and going, mm, right, I don't know. Right. Even if he's been good, like even no injuries in the NFL, playing well, just that number 28 is going to have teams going. I don't know if we want to give this guy a decent contract like next time. So yeah, like it's a weird world where I. If you're at running back in college, you want to get out of there as fast as humanly possible. Like the idea of ever going back for any reason to me is kind of insane. You want into the NFL as fast as you can get into the NFL if your goal is to make the money. Um, so, okay, the other one that I kind of liked, Trey Benson, Florida State. Yeah, there we go, baby. These were the two that I was hoping that you would actually <laughs> like because these were the top two that I had going into the season. I had Benson RB1 and I had Corum RB2. Like it. Okay. So, yeah, I, I he to me is 
he's the most sort of prototypical of all the guys you gave me. Like he's got mm-hmm. the size, the the right dimensions. You know, if you're sort of listing out those top running backs, six foot two twenty. Uh, right. Like he's got a good top gear. He finds space well at the second level. Like he he does, nothing about his game screams special to me, but it all screams pretty pretty good. I agree with you um, on basically your entire assessment there. The the part that kind of worries me about Benson, especially watching him this year, last year he had a lot of plays that were, how should I say this, more replicable. Like a lot of his missed tackles forced and a lot of his big runs, you could see and it was like, oh, he made a really nice one cut to find the open hole in the, in, in, in the running lane between the offensive linemen. And then he hit a little stutter step or a one cut against somebody who was in the open field. He made that person miss, and that ended up being a really great run. Or he found a great running lane. Maybe it was a cutback lane. He broke one tackle physically because he's got good contact balance. I think he's pretty like dense dude muscular-wise. So he stayed up, and then he got a lot of yards after contact that way. Last year, he had a missed tackles force per attempt average of .51 which is nuts. Bijan Robinson at a .44, and we thought that that was crazy. Travis Etienne, Javante Williams, they've been all around the same as like the highest we've seen over the last five years. And Benson at a, a .51. So it was crazy last year. So that's why he entered the year as my RB1, because he was dominating at those individual athletic statistics. This year, he he really struggled in the early parts of the year to find any sort of open space. And even though I, he is playing better lately, a lot of his big runs, you'll see, you watch him, especially over the last two or three weeks, and you go, okay, that's not really replicable in the NFL. Like, a lot of it is him, like, going one way and then just, like, looping the other, and the defender's, like, taking terrible angles or just not being fast enough to catch up to him. And I go, all right, in the NFL, you easily get caught when you try to reverse field like that or something of that nature. So I still like Benson. I think he's a really talented back, but... I don't think it's anywhere near threatening the first round. Like, I think that this is probably, and I think a lot of running backs in this class are third round, fourth round, fifth round types of players. So that's kind of, that, that's kind of where I'm at with Benson right now. The thing that I thought he was best at was, I think he would make a really good, like, old school zone scheme running back. You know, that classic Shanahan scheme of one cut north-south, yeah, put your foot in the ground. And that was, you thinking that? You should even watch his 2022 stuff because yeah. you'll say to yourself, get this guy on a zone blocking team because it's when he's at his best. Right. And I, I still believe that moving forward. But and we just haven't seen nearly as much of it this year. Yeah. And I, I think he they run like they run a lot of sort of power stuff with pulling blockers everywhere. And they're not like clearing the lane. You know, we watch the, the Michigan. There's a lot of open space running behind Michigan's offensive line. And it really contrasts with some of these other guys. Benson. Like, they're pulling linemen everywhere, and so many of his runs are, like, having to sort of stay patient behind multiple pulling offensive linemen and then finally, like, finding the crease and exploding into it. So I do kind of wonder with a few of these guys, actually, how much is the offense just not necessarily helping them look great as running backs? Like, whether it's the offensive line stinks and there's just no space to be had or whether it's the scheme here – is just like right. cluttering the lane for Trey Benson to actually find the space. And like he's got to wait for a while before the space materializes in the first place. I, I do think like if you get him and nobody's running this type of, but like in a Shanahan scheme, this guy feels like he'd be amazing. 
All right. We got to talk about Braylon Allen from Wisconsin. Okay. Because we, we chatted a little bit pre-show. Yeah. And I know that there's a lot of people out there who look at the fact that Braylon Allen had over 1,200 yards his true freshman and true sophomore seasons. And uh, they think that he's got a chance to be RB1 in this class. I You disagree. <laughs> I thought you were pranking me with Braylon Allen. Like, I thought you'd give me, like, a joke player that wasn't real. And you got, like, four four running backs that might be the best running back in the class. And then Braylon oh. Allen was in there oh. just for, like, funsies. Um, funsies? Like, I, I don't know that I've ever seen a less explosive athlete in my life. He's like, hold on, hold on. Does it change your your opinion if he's like six foot two, two hundred forty five pounds? No, that just explains why he's like. I honestly thought somebody had slowed the tape down. I had to. I genuinely, genuinely, this is not not a joke, not like hyperbole. I genuinely checked that there wasn't a problem with the video player, and it wasn't for some reason playing at like you know point eight speed or something. I I've never seen a less explosive like pondering plodding movement profile of a running back and okay you say yeah he's 6'2 245 but this just looks like you know like lower levels where you just take a huge guy and give him the ball because he's bigger than the people that he looks like somebody's just given a defensive end the football and said here you go we're gonna like we've run out of running backs we don't have any anymore so the defensive end is going to take the carries for the rest of the game that's what his tape looks like it's a good strat in high school right it's a really good strategy. It's cool. No, look, I am not as low on Braylon Allen as you are, but I wasn't super jazzed on him going into the season because I agree. Um, if you're going to be six foot two, two hundred forty five pounds, for me to really consider, you're basically either a mid round running back or you're a first round running back. There's not really a big in between. Like, are you a crazy athlete at that size or not? And I thought the the reason why I think I ended up having Allen just outside my top 50 to start the year and now he's a lot closer to i think he's like in the 90s now for me i've kind of brought him down every single time and a lot of his numbers look better but i watch his tape and and i just don't really see anything more than a rotational power back i i really don't and the reason why is because I think he sees the offensive line decently well like i think he knows how to get beyond the chaos of his offensive line but he gets really uncomfortable in open space really uncomfortable like he there are there were times especially over the last couple of games when i was watching to just kind of refresh my mind on these guys for this podcast there were times where he would get to the second or third level and he's got green grass in front of him and you can physically see him looking for where the closest defender is because he wants to he wants like contact (laughs) it's like dude you got i mean you earned the green grass in front of you you got to keep running and i just think he gets he gets really uncomfortable because he knows he's not a speed back but he doesn't even let himself believe that in the moments where he has the open space to maybe open it up and hit that top speed when he can and if you have a running back who is uncomfortable in space that's a tough sell because the whole idea is to get you in space, right? It is to spring you out to the sideline or get you past the second level with a pulling lead blocker. So he takes up the linebacker and you got green grass to work with. And it's, it's, it's you. And then five yards later, it's a safety. Like that's the goal. The goal of blocking is to get you in open space. And if you are uncomfortable with the goal, 
that's kind of tough. It really limits to me how valuable you are as back. So I still believe that Allen sees the field very well. His force miss tackle average is up a lot this year because he is just really great at bouncing off tackles. He's a very powerful running back. But it is getting harder for me to believe that he will be a full-time back in the league given his tendencies and how he approaches open space for those reasons yeah maybe maybe the biggest concern that i had about his tape like look he's 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 giant right so those guys are not going to look as explosive as other uh, other type uh running backs but you need to like know your profile and i think one of the biggest concerning things about big banks is when they don't fully appreciate what they are so i think the thing that he does best of anything is actually he's got a really nice lateral cut and wants to bounce bounce things into space. But you can't do that if you're 245 pounds. Like, that's not going to be your role at the NFL. You will never have a successful gig by trying to beat NFL defenses to the space on, like, on the perimeter. You're never going to get there at 245 pounds. And... You know, some people in the chat have brought up Brandon Jacobs as a comp. And it's, it's one that occurred to me as well. Now, number one, Brandon Jacobs, I don't think people fully appreciate how huge that guy was. He was like 265 yeah. pounds, not 245 pounds. But number two, Brandon Jacobs fully understood who he was, which is the juggernaut from X-Men, right? I am going to run directly forward put my head down, and because I'm 265 pounds, you will not be able to stop me. It's like running a truck through, you know, just anything. Like, his, the thing that signified Brandon Graham was torque. He is not necessarily moving that fast, but he's moving unstoppably towards you. I don't get that impression from Alan. Like, he wants to head towards the space. He doesn't necessarily want to just, like, put his head down and run over everybody. Or like the run into the, the 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 jaws of hell and just get what's there. He seems to want to be a different type of bank than he actually is. I don't know if I'd go that far. Like I think he knows who he is, but he's not as violent with it as right. like a Brandon Jacobs or like someone else also brought up in the chat, like Jamal Lewis. Like those running backs would take every carry like it was their last carry. You know, like, and they would go into you and go into contact like it was the last carry that they were ever going to get. Uh, and I love, like, I love that quality in a running back. Uh, Tyler Algier, the reason why he was RB3 for me in the class that he was, because Algier believes that every carry that he gets is going to be his last and he's going to give you every single ounce of energy he has. I think Allen under understands who he is as a back because he's quick to give you the stiff arm he's quick to lower the shoulder he's good for that yards after contact he's got he's got he's got more finesse in his game than you would think a player of 245 pounds would but having a little bit of that finesse takes away from the overall violence at contact that some of those other players had so do you believe that the finesse part of Braylon Allen's game makes him a more well-rounded running back? Because if you do, then you're going to see him in a different light and you're going to believe he's one of the best running backs in this class. But if you believe that he's that he is not explosive or athlete enough to have that kind of a title, to be that kind of an athletic difference maker at the next level, then instead him having a little bit more of a finesse game is simply taking away from the true area of strength that he has with his size and like you said like that contact that breaking tackles that being violent kind of a thing so um that's kind of how i would i i would describe braylon allen i'm i'm not the biggest fan of his game i still think there's certainly a place for him in the nfl because again i think he sees the offensive line pretty well 
But again, the thing that lowers his ceiling for me is that when he gets into the open field, he just looks really uncomfortable, and that's not a good trait for a running back to have. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't like his tape. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not a fan. Uh, you are lower on him than I am, but yeah, I, I think that we see some of that uh, similarly. So two more running backs to talk about. Bucky Irving from Oregon um, and Ray Davis from Kentucky. Let's start with Irving. Uh, mm-hmm. I quite liked his tape. I So... He was the guy who stood out in terms of, like, he is just trying to work his way through a much, much uglier picture at the line of scrimmage than some of these other running backs. Um, Yeah. I don't know much about Oregon's offensive line, but it didn't look good from his tape. Uh, He's he's a pretty small guy, but he seems very difficult to get a clean shot on. Like, people do not tend to get lined-up clean hits on him. He's constantly figuring out a way – to contort himself and give them a glancing blow or they only get one leg or whatever. Like he's, he's able to get through a lot of contact in a way that you wouldn't expect a guy that size to be able to do. I thought he had pretty good vision. Um, Mm -hmm. My only, he also didn't seem to have great top gear blazing speed, but my biggest sort of, not even a concern, but the biggest thing I sort of saw on his tape that caused me a little bit of pause was He's got a lot more hesitation to his running than somebody like Corum, where everything feels like, you know, those bag drills that they run with running backs where they're sort of bouncing, you know, legs chopping and then there's bags moving left or right. And you've got to figure out what's like, yeah, so everything sort of he's like waiting for everything to like unfold in front of him. And and it's just sort of constant chopping, whereas Corum just goes. And then when something moves in front of him, he reacts to it and goes in a different direction. I I feel like so. Go go ahead. Sorry, I, I didn't just mean to cut like you off. I feel like Irving is waiting. He's he's reactive rather than proactive with that stuff. So if Corum's coming out of the draft six years or not Corum, if Irving's coming out of the draft six years ago, we'd go. He's got Le'Veon Bell feet because that was the same <laughs> with Le'Veon Bell, right? Le'Veon Bell would do that thing when he was with the Steelers where they'd handle the ball in the backfield, and it almost looks like his feet would literally stop. Like right. he's just reading things and he's waiting for it, and then he would move on. And I think people were very very obsessed with um, that style of running and that style of patience and it can work sometimes if you're a really great athlete you can put your foot in the ground and go from zero to 60 very quickly but if not you got to keep moving forward definitely i don't think i don't really see that as as much of a detractor with his game i like bucky irving a lot and funny thing about um irving and where he is at oregon so trey benson was actually at Oregon before he was at Florida State. And he transferred from Oregon to Florida State and played very, very well. And Oregon fans probably would have been pretty upset that Benson was going off at Florida State and that he wasn't doing that at Oregon. However, Bucky Irving was at Minnesota his freshman year and transferred over to Oregon. So they went from Trey Benson at Oregon to Bucky Irving at Oregon. And so it was a pretty decent trade-off because Irving's playing really well. I like him a lot, man. There are some people uh, out there who have thrown out the Alvin Kamara comp because of um, some size and some running similarities with Bucky Irving. I don't quite see that. Kamara was more explosive to me. Um, Kamara just seemed more... Well, I guess both of them are really good at bouncing off tackles and their contact balance, so I, I, I guess I won't even mention that, but I thought Kamara was more explosive. I thought Kamara was a little bit more of a one-cut player as a receiver. And so, and I also think that Kamara was just straight up bigger. Like, I think he was an inch right. or two taller, and Kamara was like 210 at the combine, and Bucky Irving's like 190, 195. So, I don't fully agree with that one, but stylistically, I think the contact balance is the biggest 
attribute that Irving brings to the table that he's just he's been very good at this year. And he has been somebody who you cannot just lower a shoulder into this guy. His core strength is too good. His balance is too good. He will not only bounce off of it, but he will keep his feet moving and he will immediately continue to go north and south on you. So that's why you see a lot of really good numbers from him when it comes to missed tackles force per average. Um, when you see yards after contact per attempt, like a lot of that stuff is up for Irving. And those are the kind of backs that I really like. So not RB1 in this class, but somebody who I think has definitely risen up and, and is a really good football player. Yeah, I, I liked him. He was like the third guy on my list. So I, I figured Corum number one, Benson two, Bucky Irving was three. All right, Ray Davis from Kentucky. Uh, he was interesting because – so there's a few things. Number one, the more I watched, the less I liked. Like I was initially quite high on him, and then the more I watched, the more concerns I had. But also I think he's – uh, he's he, this, okay. So the thing that I don't like about him is, I think his vision is is not great. He seems to tick slow to like read blocks developing, um, but in a strange way, I think he gets like dazzled by space, right? So he sort of sees space and heads to space without actually sort of w- looking at how the blocking dynamics are and how the space is either opening or closing based off the leverage of linemen and all that kind of thing, right? And ironically, that plays really well at the second level. So once he gets through the trash, if he's into the second level, that dude is probably the best guy in this group that you've shown me because heading to space is the name of the game, right? If you're able to find the space at the second level, you're gone. And there's a bunch of plays where he ends up with a touchdown when I think some other guys wouldn't have made the cut he made at the second level. But it doesn't play as well at the line of scrimmage. And there's a bunch of plays where I think he – he gets stuffed where if he'd actually had a better uh, understanding of how the, the blocking was developing, he would have gotten an awful lot more yardage. And I was kind of thinking that, like, he, he will be better the better the blocking in front of him is. Mm-hmm. So, like, he almost gets – he's like a force multiplier for a good offensive line. If you mm-hmm. have a good offensive line that's getting movement at the line of scrimmage, that dude might look amazing. But if you don't have that – I he wouldn't be the running back that I would want behind it. Yeah, um, I don't know if I see it as negatively as you do when it comes to his vision. I actually think his vision is pretty good. I just think that no matter what Davis is going to be at this point, he's just going to be like a mid round pick. Like I think he's probably going to be an early day three type of a player because not only is this kind of his only like major big time breakout year, but he's he was at Temple for two years to start his collegiate career then he was at Vanderbilt for two years and now he's at Kentucky for one year so I think he's going to be one of the older prospects that we have in this class anyways which age for running back not great um he's got really good numbers against some SEC teams uh Steve Palazzolo uh this podcast very own was in the house when he ran mm. for 280 yards against our Florida Gators which was not fun um uh, but <laughs> it was obviously great for Davis and it really kind of put him on the map and Show that he's got some really nice all-around ability, and I think that that's what I believe with him. He's to me, he's not going to be like this guy who competes for an RB one spot super early. But I do think because of his determined running style, and he's I think he's good at a lot of things. I'm not yeah. sure he's like great at a bunch of things, but to me, I think that he could be a really nice committee back. And I mean, he's got an incredible story of adversity. I mean, he was in and out of foster care growing up. He was homeless at one point growing up. He only played football just because I think that one of his friends that he went to school with, their parents, you know, like really like helped him out. Like, and and he 
talked about how like well you know like i went to school and i i made things happen just because like i wanted to play sports like that was my motivation he's like i, I wanted to get to high school because i wanted to play high school football like that was my goal in life that was what i wanted to do and then that eventually led him to get a spot to become a collegiate athlete and it's just he's got an incredible story of, of adversity from where he has come from and i think nfl teams are absolutely going to love it so with what he has been able to do this year in the sec even with him being a little bit of an older prospect, I, I think some NFL teams gonna gonna make this guy a, a, an early ish day three pick, and I think that he'll get a spot to compete for uh, for touches even even early on in his career. Yeah, I think he's physically talented. Like it, the contrast I would make is like I don't know that there's a, a better running back in the NFL than Christian McCaffrey at working with his blocking, right? Setting up blocks, helping blocks by the way he moves and kind of you know, resetting leverages and just sort of working in tandem with the blocking unit, right? Davis feels like he operates in isolation from the blocking. Like he is trying to find space and make make plays himself without understanding how he can like fit into that picture and sort of manipulate the blocking the way a Christian McCaffrey does or, or that kind of sure. thing. Like that's where I feel like he is lacking relative to some of these other guys. Yep. Um, Agreed. The chat was asking, are we not even going to talk about Travion Henderson? We mentioned that we we mentioned him earlier as a guy that wasn't on the initial list of people for me to look at. So I forgot I forgot to send him over because Tra- <laughs> Travion was very like up and down going into the year. Um, I he was really good as a as a true freshman um, at Ohio State last year. He had some injuries, but like even when he was on the field, he just did not look like the same dude. And not even physically, even like mentally, like how he was seeing things. If he wasn't bouncing out to the sideline, he wasn't very effective at, at seeing the line of scrimmage. So I wasn't super high on him going in, into the year. My co-host, Connor Rogers at NFL Stock Exchange, he was. And he's got Henderson as his RB1. And so I totally should have uh, remembered to bring him up. We will do that next time we re- revisit running back. Mm-hmm. So after I get to, you know, final regular season rechecks and everything, we start going back on this list. Travion Henderson will definitely get to his, uh, his discussions. Here, yeah, so. I did. I scanned him very briefly just before we went on, and I I could see it. I mean, I get in this class in particular, I could definitely he see He is at world. least athletic yeah. enough to threaten one of those top spots right. where the rest of the running back room is like, okay, I'm a little bit worried about how athletic you are for the league. Henderson at least gives you that athletic potential to where he's not getting swallowed up. He is somebody who could be a little bit of a difference maker. Agreed. Yeah, so not not the strongest running back class in the world. It gets more interesting if Brooks does decide to enter the NFL despite the ACL injury. Um, But I think it's an interesting group. Like You you look at that class and there's guys that are going to contribute. They're just not going to go in the first round, which honestly is the way the NFL is supposed to be these days, right? Taking these guys in the second, third, fourth round, and they're going to be the ones you lean on to be important parts of offenses. And, you know, people like Blake Corum, I'm, I'm sure, will be a good NFL running back. Like, I, I think that guy's too good at a lot of things and some yep. of these other guys as well. So that'll be the, uh, the snapshot of the running back class. We'll be back next week with another position group. Uh, hopefully you've enjoyed listening today. Thank you, as ever, Trevor Sikama, the great Trevor Sikama. Go listen to the PFF uh, NFL Stock Exchange for all of your uh, draft needs, and we'll talk to you tomorrow.